So we are in Philippians chapter two today. We'll be talking about the gospel life where we left off last week that God is creating a group of people whose example is Jesus. He's going to give us the motivation for living out that gospel life. He's going to give us the method through doing that. He's going to give us examples of people who are living out the gospel life. He's going to encourage the readers, you and me and the members of this church, to be people who are of one spirit, who are of one mind, and they're striving side by side for the gospel. And when I was growing up, my dad used to always say this to me, my brother, and my sister. So he had three teenagers in the house at one time. And it was like we'd have a staff meeting once a week when he was just over it, right? You ever have those meetings as a family where you're just done? Well, we'd have them weekly. And so we're sitting down, and my dad would have the chore list. He was trying to explain to us who's responsible for what. Like, these are the things that need to get done. And you've got three teenagers in front of you. You've got a bad audience. And so obviously the things you're here are like, why do I have to do that? And well, I go to Austin's house all the time. Austin doesn't have to do that. And my dad would always say the same thing. It's so hard to argue with. It was because this is what you do when you're in a family. That's what he would always say. This is what you do when you're in a family. Do you enjoy the roof that's over your head? Do you enjoy the bed that you sleep in? Do you enjoy the food that you eat? Do you enjoy the clothes that you're wearing? Okay, you have those things because you're in this family. And if you're in this family, this is what you're doing. I don't know Austin's family. If he were to be a part of this family, he would be doing these things too. Like that was always his argument. These are the things that you do if you're in a family. When you accept Jesus, because what the gospel has done, what it has accomplished is Jesus has paid for yours and my sin, and he's purchased us by his blood, and now we are not just forgiven, but we're adopted into God's family. So now we're a part of this family. And if you're a part of this family, there are certain things that you do when you're in a family. Not to get into the family, but just because you're a part of it. And so that is what I believe Paul would call the gospel life. It's you are something, so now you should do something. And so the gospel, like you and I know, but a lot of people don't, the, the way that the gospel works is you can't say, oh, well, are you a Christian? And your response be on and off for the last few years, or I'm really trying. Like none of those things work. If you say, well, I'm really trying to be a Christian, you fundamentally don't understand the gospel and you don't understand what it means to be a Christian. I love the illustration that Matt uses of when you become saved, it's like a cucumber becoming a pickle. You never get to go back. It's your in. You're fundamentally changed, transformed. When God's Holy Spirit comes in you, you're transformed. You're a new creation, as the Bible would say. It's like in John chapter five, there's this story where Jesus shows up and there's all these broken people by a pool. And there's a man who's been there. He's been crippled since birth. And Jesus walks up and he says, do you want to be healed? And he goes, yeah, I want to be healed. And Jesus says, be healed. And now the man is healed. And he can tomorrow go back to the pool and sit down with all his crippled buddies and pretend to be crippled, but that's silly, isn't it? He's fundamentally changed. He can't keep doing the things he used to do. He should do other things. He's got a higher calling, a higher expectation on him. Just the same for you and me. When we meet Jesus, we get changed. We have become a part of his family, and now we should do something. We should live out the gospel life. And so tonight... 
In Philippians chapter two, we're going to start by looking at what's the motivation for living out the gospel life. Like my dad would list, do you like the clothes you wear? Do you like the food you're eating here? Paul's going to list a few things that you and I, people who have received the gospel, should have, should have experienced, should motivate us. So verse one, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. So he starts listing some things. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, when you think about Jesus and the way that he thinks about you, are you encouraged that Jesus is the creator God? That he set every star in place. He knows them all by name. He was there when he first ignited them. And he knows the time at which each one of them will all burn out. That every single atom in all of the universe, Jesus holds together by his will. That God saw you and me when we were at our lowest, our worst, our most angry, our most frustrated, our most ugly. And Jesus said, I want that person so much, I'll give up everything. I'll even allow myself to be beaten, tortured, mocked, killed for that person. When you think of it in those terms, you must be pretty rad, right? That God would want you? That you're desired by that God? Is that encouraging? Man, when the enemy wants to give you the lie that that you're not wanted, that you're a mistake, because these are the things that the enemy can try to creep into your mind. No one likes you. No one's thinking about you. The cosmic reality that you have to keep in mind is, no, my king thinks a whole lot about me, actually. He gave his life for me. That should be encouraging for us. For the believer who accepts the gospel, how could you not be encouraged? So if you have any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, in 2 Thessalonians 2.16, it says, Our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. His love that he has for us should bring comfort to us because it's not a love that you have to earn. This love here, it's, it's agape. It means it's this unconditional love. There's nothing that you could do to ever have it be retracted from you. It can't be taken away from you. It's that God consistently loves you. There's nothing you will do that will ever cause God to kick you out. You ever have someone that you're so frustrated with and you're so angry with, you just feel so betrayed by, so disappointed in that when they come into a room, you can't even look at them. You're just like, I just can't even look at that person right now. I just can't even deal with that right now. We just went through judges. And as you're going through judges, And you're just seeing God's people consistently fail and consistently do the wrong thing and go after other gods, sacrificing to other gods, just just over and over again. You're going, oh my goodness, what is happening with these people? What I always find, what I always found amazing going through it is how often every time God's people would cry out for repentance and say, God, would you help us? God's always there. God's eyes were never off his people. He was always eagerly awaiting them to say, God, can you help me out of this? And God would go, yeah. God's eyes are always on his people. There's nothing that you could ever do to make God so mad at you that you'd go, no, I'm done with you. You're cast out. So Paul says, you're wanted and you can stay 
There's nothing that's going to make you abandoned by God. The third part, if there's any participation in the spirit, you and I, because of Jesus, we get to have access to God that no other religion, no other group has. Romans 8, 15 through 16 says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's one class of person, there's one category that would dare at three o'clock in the morning slam open the door to a king's bedroom, stumble in, knock things over, shake the king awake and say, hey, would you go downstairs and get me a glass of water? Please and thank you. It's a child. No one else would dare do that but the child of a king because that child knows I have unlimited access to the king. There's nothing I can do to interrupt that king that's gonna make him turn me away. I'm his kid. You and I have that access Because if God's spirit has been put in us, you and I are able to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me if you search with your whole heart. If you want to participate in God's spirit, it's available for you and me who seek him. And the more you seek him, the more you engage him, the more you draw after him, the more you will find it. In Jesus' name, the more that you draw near to God, the more you'll find that access, that door is open. The more you'll find how wanted you are, how, how unafraid you could be to come to your king and to ask of him, to ask in boldness. Because Jesus says he can do exceedingly abundantly above anything you could ever ask or think. Why aren't we people who ask in boldness all of the time? And then finally, if you have any affection and sympathy, if you've experienced any mercy or grace from Jesus, if you can look past on your life, and you can just see God's mercy on you and God's grace being poured out into you. If you can look back on your life and see how God's hand has just been protecting you, protecting your family. If you can look back on your life and you can think about where would I be without Jesus? Would I be divorced? Would I be in prison? Would I be dead? Where would I be if I didn't have my king? If you can look back over your life and see God's tender mercy over you, you can see how God has had sympathy on your life, how he's had affection on you. If you've experienced that, if you know that you have unlimited access to the king, if you are comforted by the fact that God's love will never be taken away from you no matter what you've done, and if you're encouraged because you know how Christ sees you, if any of those are true, because of the gospel, then you and I are called, you've become something, you've become adopted, then you and I are called to do something. But he gives you one more motivation, Paul does in verse two. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And this was my dad's second argument, which didn't work so well for teenagers, but as we grew up, it started to work a little better. Where my dad, we would go, dad, why do I have to do all this chores? He goes, because you love me? Like, you want me to be happy? And with teenagers, that doesn't really go far. You know, you're like, well, you know, you'll be happy later too. You know, Paul is saying, hey, me, this guy who has worked hard to serve you. If you look at Acts chapter 16, you'll see that Paul has put in his time for this church. 
that he's been there. He's cried over them. Paul is saying, hey, remember me. Make my joy complete by being on the same team as one another. There's an argument going around in the church of Philippi right now. And so Paul is writing this letter to address that. There's two women that are very divided against each other. And Paul is writing this letter saying, hey, get a very big cosmic view right now. He says, draw back a little bit. That's something I love about Paul. No matter what the smallest, most trivial argument is, the tiniest problem in his life He always tells people, take a cosmic view. Go all the way back to Jesus. Go all the way back to what Jesus has done and then look at your problem. Is it still such a big problem? Is it still such a huge issue? Is it still such a big deal? I love that. I think there's so much application in that for you and me. How many arguments have we gotten in with our spouse or with friends or with coworkers that if you really take a cosmic view back and you think about what's really important, Do they seem kind of trivial? And you go, that maybe wasn't worth freaking out over. That maybe wasn't worth dividing over. We should be focused on what unifies us, which is Jesus, which is his spirit. And the people that don't know Jesus, how we've been called to love them so that they might know the gospel as well. He's saying, be on the same team. Then what he writes is the do what you're supposed to do now, verse three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So verse three, he's saying, if you're part of this family, if you've become, you're called to esteem others. You're called to look at others, your others' interests as greater than your own. Have some humility, not, so, not to think less of ourselves, like, oh, God, I'm just such a, I'm just such a bad person, and, and I'm so sorry, and I'm just so awful. No, but it's just to think of yourself less and to think about the interests of others and what would bless them and what would encourage them and what would be great for them. That's what we're called to do, to esteem other people. And verse 4 it's that our, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. We're called to care for people. That God's church is supposed to look so other than the whole rest of the world. When I moved down to San Diego, one of the things that I noticed very, very quickly is if you're on the highway there, you're probably not going to see one of those other people in the cars next to you ever again. There's so many people there. So you can drive like an absolute maniac and just be free of all consequences. You know what I mean? The very first day I moved down to San Diego, I got ran off the road by a semi-truck driver. And I'm like, you're on the clock. What are you doing driving like that? So I lived down there for a season. When I moved back up to Grants Pass, I had some bad habits. And so we were coming up to worship practice and Chris Murphy was playing bass with me. And I pull up to the church and I get out and Chris Murphy gets out of his car and he goes, dude, what's your problem? I'm like, what? He goes, you cut me off. I'm like, drive better. (laughs) No, but that reaction would be wrong, right? No, we're called like, do I care about the person in the car next to me? Even if I'm not going to see that person again, even if I'm not very close to that person, even if that person just lives in the house next to me, even if he's just a coworker for a season that I'm in, am I someone who genuinely cares about the people that God has pulled into my life? A way for you and I 
to self-check ourselves, our own Christian walk, is just to evaluate, do I care about the people that God has pulled into my life for me to be a light to? Do I actually care? Do I look to other people's interests more than my own? And then verses 5 through 11 is if, the, if Scripture was made of a bunch of mountain ranges, this is one of the top three peaks. This is a very intimidating text, but it's very awesome. And so let's read verses 5 through 11, then we'll, we'll break down and, and go through it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this section gives us a glimpse into God's mind. This is called, for theologians, kenosis. The kenosis. This is, dissertations have been written about it, that people have earned their, doctor, their doctorate's degree by writing paper after paper after paper about these verses. It is so, so thick. And what it, what it is, what I think is so rad about it, is when I was going to SOU, I was always told, when you go to a university, there's an anti-Christian agenda. And every time I heard that, I was like, yeah, okay, so they teach evolution in science class. That's cool. You know, whatever. I went to public high school. No worries. I was wrong. There is a straight up anti-Jesus agenda. It's crazy. It's the craziest thing you've ever seen. I'm in a statistics class with a doctor. This is a doctor. He's one of the heads of the math department at SOU. And the thing he enjoyed was openly mocking people who believed in the Christian faith as we're studying statistics. Like nothing about philosophy. He's got, he never would do it for any Muslims or for Hindus. It's just Christianity. And one of my favorite ones is we're sitting in class, it's getting close to Christmas, and he goes, and just so you know, why, these Christ, why Christians are just so dumb, they don't even know that Jesus wasn't even born on Christmas. And I'm sitting in the front like, oh, you got me. Like, oh, that just shattered my whole reality right there. No, we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Jesus's birth on Christmas because it's winter solstice. That it gets darker and darker because of the way that the earth is rotating around the sun up until that day. And then every day thereafter, the, the days get longer and brighter and brighter. And early Christians went, well, that's just like what happened with Jesus. Jesus came on the scene. He was born. And ever since then, the days get brighter and brighter. There's more hope. There's more joy. That, that's when we should celebrate Jesus's birth. It's stuff like that. Well, one of the things that they say at SOU is Jesus never even claimed to be God. The early church would have never believed that Jesus was God. It was like a bunch of men who went fishing. And when they were on the boat, they caught the fish. It was this big. Then when they went home, it was this big. And then when they're telling their grandkids, it was a whale. And it just got bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, people are writing books about how Jesus is God. That's what this statistic professor 
would teach the class. Here's what's so rad about this book. Jesus is crucified, died, buried, and rises from the dead in 30 AD. This letter is written in 62 AD. 32 years is not long enough for someone that you personally knew to become God in your eyes, right? More than that, this, what Paul is writing, verses 5 through 11, it's a song. It's written in poetic verse. It's got, it's got rhythm. It's got rhyme. It's got, it's got a scheme developed to it. Paul is quoting it because the early church, they didn't have the letter to the Philippians to read and to study about Jesus. It's being written right now. They didn't have the gospels to go through. They had word. And so this is one of the things they would repeat to each other saying, this is our God. This is who we follow. This is our king. And so all the believers of the early church would know this, and Paul is quoting it. What that means is the early church knew Jesus was God, and they celebrated it, and they meditated on it way before this letter was written. For me, as someone who just went through that abuse, I was like, that's cool, because this, this blows the argument out of the water. And let me show you how. Verse 5, it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that word form is a Greek word called morphe. It was where you get the term metamorphosis. And what it means is it's the core essence of what something is. It's what makes you who you are. What this text is saying is Christ Jesus, who though he was God, though he was God, I asked Josh if he could throw a slide up for me because history doesn't even agree with the, the science or the, the, sorry, the statistics teacher. I don't know if he, he got it to work, but it's really cool. Nope, don't do it. Okay. So it's really cool. There's this old, old temple, the synagogue where Christians, believers would go and meet and talk about Jesus. And there's a mosaic on the ground. It got uncovered in 2008 is when it was discovered. And this mosaic that the early church would meet at, it's just said, God, Jesus Christ, just Jesus is God, just the early church. So simple. Jesus is God. I just love that. I thought I wanted to show you, look it up on your own. It came out in 2008. It's super easy to find, but this text is saying he's in the form. He is God. He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. John 14, nine says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This text right here, 5 through 11, is a, a proof text for the Trinity. It's a proof text for, it, it occurs throughout the entire Bible that our God is made up of multiple persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. In Genesis chapter 1, you have God having a conversation saying, let us make man in our image. It's all plural. You have, if you look at ancient Jewish theology books. You, the Jewish scholars would write about a second Yahweh character, that there's the transcendent Yahweh God who's in heaven, who oversees, who's in control, who knows all, who's, who's running everything. And then every once in a while with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and with Gideon, this physical manifestation of Yahweh would show up and interact and have conversations. But they said there's, there's no way that God just leaves his throne and leaves it abandoned and chaos ensues. It's, there's a second Yahweh character. There's a second manifestation of him. So this is not unfamiliar. This is something that's consistent throughout all scripture. And in Luke chapter three, you see them all. 
You have Jesus gets baptized, God the Son, the sky gets ripped open, and God the Father says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descends on him. It's something I do not understand, and nobody understands, and thank the Lord for that, because if you had a God that you could fit into a box and say you understand completely, that's not a God worth worshiping. But this is who our God is, and Jesus is God. Verse six says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The very first thing that the enemy does to people back in Genesis chapter three is he tells them, do you want to be like God? If you eat of this, you'll be like God. You can have it. What's that thing that if you could just have, you'd be totally satisfied, that you'd be complete. For a lot of people, it's, it's retirement, it's money, it's status, it's making a name for yourself that's going to be remembered. It's a relationship, it's love, it's approval. There's these things that we could all go, oh, if I just had that. Well, what if it was equality with God? That kind of glory, that kind of power. It says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to. It's not like God the Father and God the Spirit were in heaven and they were like, okay, two to one, we voted. Jesus, you're it. You're going to go down and you're going to suffer for these people. No way. Jesus decided to not hold on to county with God, but he emptied himself. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, verse seven, by taking the form, morphe, of a servant. So what does that mean? that Jesus would empty himself and take on the form of the very same thing that was said earlier. Jesus is God. Now it says he's emptied himself. He's taking on the form of a servant. He's become human. Does that mean that Jesus gave up God? Jesus is not God anymore. No way. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. When we think about Jesus living through the Gospels, my favorite picture that Matt ever gave was, it's not like Jesus was Superman and he just lived life as Clark Kent. But at any time he could rip open his shirt and there'd be a big red S and he's ready to save the day and take bullets. It's more like Bruce Banner, who's the Hulk, where when he's in human form, there are no special powers. He's just a normal human man. But there are times when his power shines through that God demonstrates signs of what he's going to accomplish through Jesus. When there's miracles to demonstrate that he is God, he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the one who's come to redeem God's people. There are signs that he does through them. And in those moments, he becomes the Hulk and demonstrates God's power. But God emptied himself, became the form of Jesus 100% God, 100% man, lived life fully as a man, being born in the likeness of men. And eight, verse eight, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why would Jesus do this? You know, if you were going to be born anywhere, this is a question when we talk about Jesus being born that I ask the grade schoolers all the time. What, what kind of household would you want to be born in? Like a palace, obviously, right? Like something rad. Like if you were God and you could choose, where would you be born? At the very least, you would choose something moderate, 
where at least your needs are going to be taken, like nothing before refrigerators were invented. You know, but Jesus, he chose to be born to a super poor family and guaranteed that they would be a super poor family of bad standing when Mary got pregnant, seemingly out of wedlock. And now all of, in this honor-shame culture, as the families are looking at Mary and Joseph, they, Joseph isn't getting the good jobs. Joseph isn't in high standing with his family. So Jesus is born to that family, super poor. And when, and, and when he grows up, he's going to be homeless with 12 dudes walking around and, and teaching and preaching. And he's going to be put on trial over and over again. And he's going to be betrayed by one of his best friends. And he's going to be beaten and mocked and tortured to death. He's going to be spat on by one of the mouths that he created. Why would Jesus do that? He did it because he wanted you and he wanted me. And that's what it took to purchase us back. And he did it so that no one could ever stand before God and say, well, you just don't know what I've been through. Because Hebrews tells us because Jesus did all of that, because Jesus chose all of that, he's our good high priest. There's no one that can stand before God and one-up him. It's like anyone in here lift weights, Give me one person. Who lifts weights? What do you lift? Give me poundage. What do you lift? How many? 425? That's pretty good. I squat 426. (laughs) You know what I mean? No one can stand before Jesus and go, yeah, that's pretty bad, but I had it a little bit worse. No way. Jesus knows every single thing we've been through. What the Bible tells us about Jesus is that he was tempted in every single way, yet without sin. That he understands it. He's a good high priest because you can come to him with everything you've been through, every issue, every disappointment, every failure, and say, Jesus, I've messed up. And he'd go, I get it. I get how you got there. And I've paid for it for you. We have a good high priest. Verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Isaiah 45, 23 says this, that every tongue will confess only one name, the name of God. And this song that the early church would be singing will take that and attribute that to Jesus. Jesus is God. And verse 11, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The song ends with it being all about Jesus. And so it starts by saying, this chapter starts by saying, if you've experienced these things, if you've been adopted into God's family, then you should do something really, really hard. You should be a person who's putting other people's interests above your own and seeking to care for others. And you just go, man, that's really, really hard. I don't know how to do that. Here's how. You're supposed to have the mind that God has. 
that you view people the way that Jesus views them, that you know who your king is, that you know that God has a spot for you, that you know what God has gone through and done in your place. We should have this story seared into our minds. If you have this constantly in your mind, your actions will change. It just is what it is. Your, your life will change. I broke my leg like you guys all know. And there's a, where the scar is, where they had to do surgery, it hurts. And so it hurts when I walk incorrectly. When I walk like I still have a cast on and I limp, it hurts. But if I remember to roll my foot the way that I was created to, the way that I'm supposed to, it doesn't hurt anymore. When we're broken people, Jesus has cured us. Jesus has taken away our sin and it takes effort for us to get our mind right. The mind that we're supposed to have is the mind that Jesus has and we're supposed to look at people the way that Jesus looks at them. Where Jesus did not count glory something to be held onto. The gospel says the way up, the thing that we all want is to get down, is to serve, is to look at others as their, look at their own interests and to care for people. If you're in God's family, if you've been transformed by, by the gospel, that's the gospel life that we're called to do. And so verse 12 says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is not saying that you should be worried if you're saved. Work out your own fear and salvation with trembling is not going, guy, I really hope that time I prayed to Jesus, it took not sure if he was listening. I should do the sinner's prayer again and again and again. Maybe this time I need to get rebaptized. Maybe I need to try harder. That's not what it's saying. In the context of what has happened, it's saying, okay, if you're experiencing these things because of the gospel, you're already in God's family. And you're, you're doing these things. You have your mind set on what Jesus has done and what Jesus has accomplished, you're supposed to work out how that plays out in your life with fear and trembling. If someone comes up to you and hands you a million dollars and says, at the end of this year, I'm gonna come back and I want you to give me the best investment that you can possibly give back to me and I'll reward you for it, I bet you that you'll consider what you're gonna do with that money with fear and trembling. Jesus has given us his life. It's the parable of the, the 10 talents. Jesus has given you and I, each of us, an investment. Jesus took our death, gave us his life, and now you and I are supposed to live life as if Jesus is living through us actively today. And so you and I are supposed to work out how that plays out every single day with fear and trembling. How am I going to use God's investment best? How am I going to represent Jesus best to the world? Because that's what Jesus has called me to do. That's what my boss has asked me to do. How am I going to use his investment we're supposed to work it out with fear and trembling. Take it seriously. God did not save us for us to just waste our lives and just to wait for Jesus to come back. He's called us into action to live the gospel life, to be Jesus in your home and in your workplace and in your community and to your neighbor, especially those that do not know Jesus. It's like John chapter five. It's one of my favorite stories. Jesus did not heal that man so that he would go back to the pool and pretend that he's still broken. You have to be different now. Everything has changed. You're no longer the broken person you used to be. You're fundamentally different. In verse 
14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So become, do. Here's some more do's that Paul gives to us. And every believer should have the all in verse 14 circled. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's very hard for every person. It's especially hard for Christians to do what we are called to do without grumbling. Christians tend to be known as, as a grumbling group. That's not how we're supposed to be characterized. God doesn't like that in his people, but unfortunately it tends to be in his people. You see it in the Israelites where God is actively with them, providing for them. He's daily above them in a cloud of fire or a, 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 a pillar of fire, cloud, a cloud over them to protect them from the sun. And it's never good enough. No matter what God is doing in their life, no matter what, how God is actively demonstrating his provision, his love for them, his mercy on them, his plan for them, there's always something to complain about. They find it. They rile each other up. And then they complain and God goes, what are you, why, why are you doing this right now? And isn't it so true that if you've got something that you're mildly frustrated about and you find someone else who you think they might be mildly frustrated about this too, could be a coworker, could be your kids, could be your wife. And you just bring it up in passing. Is this frustrating to you? Yes. Oh my gosh. And then now we're just frustrated. And now we can really dig into it and become a frustrated people. That's not what we're supposed to do. The things that God has called us to, the light that we're supposed to be in the world are people who are not grumbling, frustrated, murmuring people. We're supposed to do all things without that. We're called to, as Paul says, shine as lights in the world. We're supposed to be attractive, eye-catching people by the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we talk to our wives, the way that we talk to our kids, the way that we conduct business, the way that you speak to a stranger should be so countercultural. The way that we're supposed to be is a beacon of hope. Everywhere you go, everywhere I go, we're called to be signs of God's beauty. We're supposed to shine as light in a world that desperately needs light. You ever been somewhere really dark and then a light comes on? I took kids into Klamath Falls. There's these caves. There are these lava tubes. And you can, you got to put on helmets. You got to put on knee pads. And you can go deep, deep, deep in the earth. And when you shut off all the lights, it is black. It's the blackest of blacks. And the tiniest, tiniest bit of light can illuminate an entire room. It's so crazy. You and I are called to be lights. It doesn't matter what your capacity is. It doesn't matter if you feel like, you, God, I just don't know. I don't know if I, in the past I've done enough. They're not going to listen to me. Just you're called to be lights. Be faithful to what Jesus has called you to do, where he has called you to be. Paul says to hold fast to the word of life. Verse 16. When you get in the game and you start being a light, Satan is going to come after you. If you've ever watched football, and I don't, 
So correct me if I'm wrong. I've never seen or heard of two teams lining up and facing each other. And the quarterback says, ready, set, go. Whatever he says, hike. (laughs) And he shoots the ball off. I've never seen the opposing team turn away from the guys dressed up, ready to battle and go running into the cheerleaders and just tackle them. I've never seen it because they're going to only be focused on it, pushing back the people who are actually in the game. When we live out the gospel life, you're getting in the game and you shouldn't be surprised when Satan attacks you. In Luke chapter four, Jesus gets baptized. He's identified as the son of God for every person around. And immediately he's driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Satan's going to do everything he can to get Jesus to fall. And Jesus uses one tactic, one tool over and over and over again. He clings to the word of life. He uses scripture to come to combat Satan. Doesn't argue with them. Doesn't give him his point of view, the way he's thinking about it. He uses scripture. You and I, if we're going to live the gospel life, we have to be steeped in scripture. You got to know God's word. Man, I'm so right now, I'm motivated to memorize Philippians chapter two, verses five to 11. I'm just so amazed by it. I love the fact that the early church would just know that and recite it to each other when they're talking about who God is and what God has done. I got to memorize that now. I'm just so motivated by it. We should all be motivated, have this desire to know God's word because this is how God speaks to us. This is how the Holy Spirit is going to convict you and move you and and cause you to talk to people. This is how you know who your God is, what he is asking of you, what he wants from you. We have to be people who are steeped in God's word, people who cling to the word of life. And I love this last one. You should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, even if while I'm in prison and I die, I'm going to be stoked because if, if my death gets to solidify your faith, I'm going to rejoice and you should rejoice with me. You remember when Paul said, do everything without grumbling or murmuring? That sounds like putting that into practice, right? Even though I'm in prison right now, man, if I die and it means that it solidified your faith to move you forward to live the gospel life, I'm going to be so excited and you should be excited too. What a perspective. What a perspective that I so often lack. That's Paul bringing the cosmic thing into the minor view. I love it. We got to do that all the time. And so now he's going to give you and me two examples, two people to look at. The first one is Timothy, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. In John thirteen thirty five, Jesus says, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. So Paul's got this young dude, and here's how Paul describes him. It's verse 20 and 21. He will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. He's someone that you ask, man, does that that guy really care about me? Yeah, he does. And what's interesting is how he follows it up. 
They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. That's Jesus Christ's interest. The people who are of Jesus Christ are those who are genuinely concerned for the welfare of those around them. That's an example for us. That's the kind of person who's living out the gospel life. If someone were to describe me in a paragraph, if they were going to say something about me, would they say, I'm sending Justin because I know he'll be genuinely concerned for you. I don't know if he's ever met you before. I don't know if, if there's going to be a long relationship. I don't know how long you guys are going to know each other before I send him somewhere else. But while he's there, I know he's going to be genuinely concerned for you. I don't know if I'd be described that way. But living out the gospel life, that's how we should be described. And verse 25 is a second example. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service. A few things that I underlined in there. Just the way that Paul describes him as a brother, as a worker, as a soldier, as a messenger, as a minister, and that he was distressed that his people had heard that he was sick. Am I distressed that I used to be sick, but now I'm better? And the people who used to know me still think I'm sick. There are people in my life they don't know that I'm saved. They should, but maybe they don't. Maybe I went to high school with them. Maybe I knew them long ago. There are family members that don't know that I've been healed, that we've been healed. Are, do we, are we distressed for the people in our lives that know us, that don't know that I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was lost, but now I'm found. Are we distressed for them? Are we motivated for them that they have to know the king that I know? We can't be people who have a quiet conversion. We have to be people who know that, as 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, that you are ambassadors for Christ. Each one of us who has accepted Jesus, each one of us who has been given Jesus' life, we represent Jesus to every person in this world. We are ambassadors for Christ. We represent his kingdom, not this kingdom. We represent the interests of his kingdom, not this world that that's who we're called to be. We're called to be brothers. We're called to be workers. We're called to be soldiers because you know what? The enemy is real and he seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. He wants to destroy your marriages. He wants to rob the joy away from your kids. He wants to ruin lives. And it is a battle every single day. And we're called to be soldiers. And we can't forget that. We're called to be messengers and ministers, and we're supposed to be motivated to the point of using the word distressed. I need these people to know about Jesus. 
because the great kindness that my God has shown me. We're called to be ambassadors. We have become, we have been accepted into God's family through the gospel. We are more loved than we could ever imagine. We're a part of this family, and in this family, there are certain things that you do, and this is what we're called to do. We're called to be Jesus as we walk out of this place to our spouses, to our coworkers, to our friends, to our family, and we need to be distressed for them. We need them to know the king who has redeemed us, who have saved us. We're not the people laying by the pool broken anymore. We have new life. We've been forgiven. We've been redeemed. We need to go out and preach. We need to go out and see lives transformed, marriages restored. We need to see people saved by the gospel that we need to be living out every single day. And so Jesus, I pray that you will help us to live out the gospel life. I pray that we'd be people who bring the cosmic stuff into even the most tiny of arguments, that our perspective would be that if my king would make himself low for me, if my king would empty himself and not grasp onto glory, then I can be humble and I can seek others' interests over my own. And I can genuinely care for people. Jesus, I pray that you will empower me. I pray that you empower each and every one of us to do that in our lives as you've called us to, as you've redeemed us to, as you've given your life to us to. It's in your name we pray, amen. God bless you guys.